Once upon a time, when all truly great stories begin. If you've been looking for an enchanting new hero in the world of children's entertainment, look no further. Freddy is here. <laughs> Freddy the Frog. I'm not a frog. I'm a prince. <laughs> That's funny. It's the story of a handsome prince with magical powers who falls under an evil spell cast upon him by his wicked aunt. I shall rule the world. But grows up to become the most famous secret agent in all the world. With heartwarming narration by James Earl Jones. And so began... Freddy's Greatest Adventure to Date. And starring the voice of Academy Award-winning actor Ben Kingsley as Freddy. I'm not the little frog I was so long ago. Join Freddy. Good choice. Welcome to Lost in Twin Peaks. Today's episode is the current events episode. Usually these come out on Wednesdays during my weekly episodic coverage of Twin Peaks. But in this case, we're rearranging things a bit with the focus of Firewalk with me. We will have a current events episode coming this Wednesday, but that'll be about the historical context of the missing pieces. So in this case today, we're looking at August of 1992 when Twin Peaks went into wide release, even though it had its con premiere at the film festival three or four months earlier and other premieres at different times, I think. If we're going to focus on a time when it hit the zeitgeist for whatever amount it hit the zeitgeist, that would be around August 28th, 1992, when it was released. So let's get right into that, starting with the film context. You could pick from three debuts for Firewalk With Me and come away with a different impression based on each one. On May 16th, 1992, Firewalk With Me was screened twice at the Cannes Film Festival, once in the morning for critics and again in the evening for the gala premiere. The critical screening is the one that has become notorious. As press clippings I'll read explain, the film was greeted with boos. Although Robert Engels has said he remembers enthusiastic applause, he's probably thinking of the evening screening, when the crowds were generally more polite. This isn't terribly uncommon in cons. Even when Wild at Heart won the top prize, there was some audible jeering. But because Firewalk With Me's overall critical reception was so terrible, this event and the sour press conference which followed have become a significant part of the Firewalk With Me legend. Lynch, who felt ill through the entire week, was confronted by hostile journalists. Some of the write-ups following their interviews are positively scathing, and this reaction set up the common narrative that the film was just a cynical cash grab. Although the film would also premiere, apparently the same day in Japan, to a much more positive reception, it was Lynch's radical reversal from 1990 at Cannes that became the story. Exactly four months later, on August 16th, the film had another debut. A couple weeks later, there would be an L.A. event to celebrate its release at a seafood restaurant, but as some newspapers were keen to observe, the film itself was not shown at that time. Word was already out in Hollywood that the film was going to be a flop. But on August 16th, Lynch found a much friendlier crowd to greet the movie's U.S. premiere. At an old theater in Snoqualmie, Washington, where the director earned laughter for his cheerful but half-hearted praise of the rickety building, Firewalk With Me was screened for locals and diehard fans who had made this pilgrimage to attend the first Twin Peaks festival. This was, of course, where the film and the Twin Peaks pilot had been shot, and viewers were primed to appreciate the new work, even if it was dramatically different from what they had come to know and love on TV. For years afterwards, Many, if not all, fans would welcome the film as a crucial part of the saga, poring over its new clues and relishing the opportunity to visit their favorite places and characters one more time. 
on August 28th, New Line opened the film as a wide release, or at least as wide a release as it would get, 691 theaters, where it earned $1.8 million its first weekend before grossing $4.2 million total in North America, less than half its budget. It was, as expected, a flop. The film continued to receive among the most consistently awful reviews any major release has ever encountered, but that reaction belongs to the fallout from Khan and the general mood of the media disenchantment with Lynch, whose moment in the sun had passed as far as they were concerned. More significant in the late summer of 92 was the even more damning reaction of the public. Silence. Utter indifference to a phenomenon which had once captured Super Bowl numbers on TV. At every stage, Peak's creators seemed to tell themselves it couldn't get worse. Yet it always did. Promoters for Lynch Frost's last gap at relevance, their long-delayed sitcom On the Air was hung out to dry for just two weeks on ABC, in June before getting yanked, all told themselves and others that even if the film simply maintained the show's worst numbers in terms of ratings on TV, it would break even as a film. But of course, it couldn't even get halfway to that dismal benchmark. With this pathetic whimper, Twin Peaks finally stopped struggling and sank beneath the waves. Firewalk with May debuted at number 8 this weekend, although remarkably it was not the lowest ranked and possibly not even the worst reviewed film to come out this week. That dishonor is held by an animated British film called Freddy as FR07, about a French prince turned into a frog who becomes a secret agent. The title is a play on 007. He drives a talking car and teams up with the Loch Ness Monster to fight a devious villain who has disappeared the Canterbury Cathedral. A transatlantic bomb, Freddy was released in twice as many theaters as Firewalk With Me, yet only earned about a quarter of the amount and did not even crack the top 10, coming in at number 11, just barely ahead of the Ivory Merchant adaptation Howard's End, which had been out for nearly six months at that point, and was currently on less than 200 screens. And if you want to round out the top 13, coming in right behind Howard's End was Buffy the Vampire Slayer, with Christy Swanson in the part assumed later by Sarah Michelle Gellar in the TV show. This was 20 weeks into its run. As for the top 10, coming in just under Firewalk with me, were two films I well remember from the time. Three Ninjas, in its seventh week, a silly film about three surfing preteens who fight by learning karate, which was catnip for kids of a certain age. Mine, to be exact. Although, even as an eight-year-old, I noticed how many different films it was gleefully ripping off, uh, I guess, repackaging, to appeal to our demographic. And Sister Act, in its ninth week, in which lounge singer and gangster's mole Whoopi Goldberg is placed in witness protection as a nun, and she turns the Catholic choir into a rollicking gospel act. Above Firewalk With Me, at number seven, in its sixth week, was Peggy Marshall's A League of Their Own, the Madonna, Gina Davis, Rosie O'Donnell vehicle about a women's baseball team during World War II. It also subtly marked the beginning of a comeback for Tom Hanks, the odd man out amongst the mostly female cast, and crew as well, who gets to deliver the film's most famous line, there's no crying in baseball. I actually just realized that from this point on, he'd have an almost unbroken string of hits, with two Oscars and 13 of the 14 films he made over the subsequent decades surpassing $100 million. So this was probably the last time he would play anything like a real supporting role. Well, that's not true, actually. The That thing you do, the, the rock film where he plays the manager of a one-hit wonder, he's basically supporting role in that as well, I guess. But 
otherwise, you know, this, this, this was uh, his springboard into superstardom. Uh, not that he hadn't been famous before. He was in a lot of 80s comedies and certainly Big was a huge success, but this was really the beginning of the Tom Hanks we think of today. Number six in the charts was the action film Rapid Fire, which was one of Brandon Lee's last roles before he was killed on an accident on the set of The Crow, his tragic early death, an eerie reflection of his father, Bruce Lee. The movie uses the Tiananmen Square massacre of several years earlier, when Chinese authorities killed and arrested many pro-democracy demonstrators as a plot point amidst international intrigue involving a drug kingpin. Number five, after four weeks, was Death Becomes Her, Robert Zemeckis' supernatural comedy starring Meryl Streep, Goldie Hawn, Bruce Willis, and Isabella Rossellini, a Lynch touchstone there, about rivals who take an eternal youth potion only to find their bodies grotesquely distorted as they become Gumby-like, unkillable, living corpses. In its second week, number four was Single White Female, a thriller starring Bridget Fonda and Jennifer Jason Leigh about an obsessive woman who begins imitating and eventually adapting the appearance of her roommate. Uh, The titles actually become a verb over time to describe such behavior, which is probably the biggest legacy of this movie. The number three title was another small-town horror film making its debut, the much-maligned Pet Cemetery 2, starring Edward Furlong of the previous summer's blockbuster Terminator 2. Stephen King had his name removed from the project, and director Mary Lambert expressed disappointment with how the studio forced her to handle the film. Apparently, Paramount objected to Lambert's desire to make the survivor of the first film her lead character. They didn't trust that a teenage girl could carry a horror movie. This is an interesting contrast with Lynch's elevation of Laura Palmer, but it's also just a bizarre assertion on its own right, given the origins of the slasher genre with Halloween, not to mention Stephen King's own breakthrough with Carrie. The number two film in its second week was Unforgiven, Clint Eastwood's gritty western, which would go on to win Best Picture at the Academy Awards, the second Western in two years, although its reputation has generally held out better than Dances with Wolves. Given all of these more well-known titles, the number one film at the box office this weekend, bringing in $7.3 million, came as a surprise to me at least. Honeymoon in Vegas, a comedy starring James Caan, Nicolas Cage, and Sarah Jessica Parker. It didn't ring a bell until I read the tagline on the poster a comedy about one bride, two grooms, and 34 flying Elvises. I recall seeing the trailer for this before several films that I attended that summer, and I think it was a big audience pleaser, with everyone guffawing at the wackiness of the premise. As I recall, the Elvises are coming down from the sky in parachutes. If memory serves, my parents ended up going to see it, and returned from the date night with a disappointed review. The best parts were all in the preview. So reversing our usual order, since we're dealing with a film rather than a show, we're going to just take a brief glance at the TV lineup, as we usually do with the movie box office, for the number one show that aired this night, the August 28th, the night that uh, Firewalk in the Open to a wide public. Apparently it was the news magazine 2020, with an 11.4 rating, although the subject is lost to history. Only one of the shows in primetime, almost all reruns on this Friday evening in August, had worse ratings than Twin Peaks Finale and all of them were watched by more people than bought a ticket for Firewalk With Me during its entire run in theaters. As for the news of this day, on August 28, 1992, when Twin Peaks Firewalk With Me was released to the general public, the unprecedented Hurricane Andrew was finally tapering off over the Appalachian Mountains. And I'll just note at the time of this recording, that's an interesting but not surprising, given hurricane season, uh, news story. 
since another hurricane, a huge hurricane, has just hit land in Louisiana this past uh, day or two. Uh, Hurricane Andrew in 92, up to that point, was the costliest hurricane in U.S. history, but it's since fallen to number seven, with three of the higher rankings from 2017 alone. And my guess would be this this upcoming one is going to add to that total as well, since I wrote this. The storm was particularly damaging in Florida. Hurricane Andrew decimated that area, and with the immediate disaster over at this point, on August 28th, and the long-term recovery efforts underway, its effect on the ongoing presidential election remained an open question. When we last left off uh, covering the news on June 10th, 1991, for the two-part Twin Peaks finale, America was in a very different place, throwing its second gargantuan Gulf War victory parade in a couple days, with George Bush looking absolutely unbeatable for re-election. But now, by the time Firewalk Me came out, Bush was in a much tighter race than expected, against not just Bill Clinton, a relatively obscure governor who had slashed his way through a crowded but not particularly impressive field of candidates to seize the Democratic nomination. But he was also up against Ross Perot, the eccentric Texan billionaire who was running an independent campaign which captured a mood of widespread populist throw-the-bums-out, although his focus for this discontent was, of all things, the national deficit. While Bush had spent much of the prior weeks focusing on Florida, he was now preoccupied with a crisis in another Gulf state, Iraq. His strength in 91 was increasingly perceived as weakness in 92. As a radio station general manager named Michael Disney put it in the New York Times, how can we send a million troops around the world to a foreign country, yet we can't get food and water to our own people? The Times also paraphrases Disney's speculation that voters will compare Desert Storm to Florida Storm and find his domestic skills lacking. This was an old problem for Bush albeit one drowned out by the acclaim generated during the war itself, and especially its victorious aftermath. Recall Time Magazine's Person of the Year cover, which we discussed back in mid-season two of Twin Peaks, strong abroad and weak at home. This month, Time would revisit the subject in a cover story dated not long before Firewalk with Me's premiere, The Fight of His Life, which allows Bush himself to advocate his case. The magazine conducted an interview with Clinton a month earlier, the schedule being based around the two parties' conventions. But because there is another issue dated within four days of Firewalk Me's release, and probably already on stands when it opened, and especially because that other cover is so relevant to the subject of the film itself, as well as being something that still garners headlines today, I'm going to focus on that Time cover instead, the second one. So the Time Magazine cover we're going to discuss is titled Cries and Whispers. It's from August 31st, 1992. And as Time covers go, this one is pretty simple, almost startling in its straightforwardness. Beneath the red title, Cries and Whispers, running down the left side of the page, a caption reads, The Ugly Explosion of an Unconventional Family. Again, what a startling coincidence to run with that caption the week of Firewalk with me. It reminds me of how Time Magazine's cover for the day that Cooper fell the bomb, I mean, the exact day that that issue came out, just said evil across it in, in a black background. That was the one that we discussed for the, you know, June 1991 cover. And in both cases, obviously, total coincidence, nobody was paying attention to Twin Peaks at this point, but it's just fascinating that that was in the air at this time. So the face on this particular cover is Woody Allen's. Then in his late 50s, but looking a bit younger, his hair still brown and few wrinkles on his familiar bespectacled face. 
He looks somber, maybe even a bit vulnerable, and one more caption below the others reads, exclusive, Woody Allen defends himself. The article is by Richard Corliss, one of Time's two film critics, both named Richard. The other one, Richard Schickel, writes an accompanying capsule on Allen's and Farrow's next, and obviously last, film together, Husbands and Wives. The article takes a sardonic, if poignant, tone, opening, Woody and Mia. No last names, please, for the king and queen of Manhattan's glitterati. For a decade, they were the wax doll couple atop a cake at the wedding of popular art and social responsibility. He made, and she starred in, movies that played like fantasies of their partnership. Off-screen, their liaison produced the portrait of an ideal postmodern family. Unmarried, they lived apart, yet loved together, while nurturing a rainbow coalition of privileged American kids and children salvaged from the third world, mom and dad lived the city's most public-private lives. Toot New York was their movie set. Madison Square Garden, their all-star playground. The chic eatery Elaine's, their kitchen. Central Park was their shared backyard. From their respective apartment windows on opposite sides of the park, they would wave love at each other. That patch of green is now their DMZ. Woody Allen, America's most revered and introspective filmmaker, and Mia Farrow, the waif who matured into a Madonna in real and real life, are at war. What began as a skirmish over custody rights of three children escalated early last week when Allen declared that he was in love with one of Farrow's adopted daughters, Sunyi Farrow Previn. Then the tabloid artillery went ballistic. The Connecticut police were investigating a complaint of child molestation against Allen. It was revealed that Farrow discovered the infidelity when she found nude photos of Sun Yi that Allen had taken. Farrow was mobilizing her loyal kids, sending them to newspapers and TV shows to defend her motherhood. Those close to Allen charged Farrow with beating Sun Yi upon learning of the affair and of mistreating her adopted brood. Each day's accusations were grotesque, and as they say, growing tesker. So this piece does not find uh, anything particularly salutary in either partner's behavior, although more details are provided about the allegations against Farrow than against Allen. Paired with the extended Q&A with Woody, this apparently is where he said his infamous quote, the heart wants what the heart wants, and a shorter printed exchange with Soon Yi, the overall impression is probably more favorable to him than Mia, who is not interviewed, although her attorney, the as of 2020, also not particularly favorable, Alan Dershowitz, is quoted. I well remember this scandal at the time, one of the first big celebrity blow-ups that I can recall, another being the accusations of Michael Jackson being a child molester the following year. Both Alan and Jackson were people I admired as a fairly precocious eight- or nine-year-old, although Jackson's influence stretched much earlier into the late 80s and the Bad Album. Man in the Mirror was my favorite song at four years old. Alan was a more recent discovery, and I'd only seen Broadway Danny Rose. For several years, the stench of this downfall forestalled any future explorations. My impression at the time was almost entirely to do with the Soon Yi aspect, as this was what the pop culture discourse, often salaciously and satirically, focused on. The accusations about and by his much younger daughter Dylan weren't something I was even really aware of initially, and in the article and much other coverage, they were treated mostly as a bizarre, icky sideshow to the main event. That would change two decades later, when Dylan, estranged from her adopted father since she was six, revived the accusations as an adult, and a consensus began to form that Alan was likely guilty of what he'd avoided any legal consequence for. 
as the charges were eventually not pursued out of a variety of factors, including some skepticism, but also concern for Dylan's well-being. But this was also what had kind of, sort of, implicitly been cleared of in the public mind, as everyone initially focused on either mocking or defending him for the more comprehensible transgressions of romancing his ex-girlfriend's adult daughter, whom he hadn't had much of a prior relationship to. Now the more serious charge of incestuous molestation came to the fore, around 2015, 16, I think maybe even 2014, it was right in the mid-teens. Collaborators denounced him, meanwhile his son with Farrow became a crusading journalist in the Me Too era, who played a large role in taking down Harvey Weinstein, among others. Film projects and books were cancelled, and eventually, HBO broadcast a documentary, Alan vs. Farrow, which comes down heavily on Dylan's side, and which, full disclosure, I've not seen yet. Meanwhile, Alan, Soon Yi, and one of the adopted Mia Woody children have continued to proclaim his innocence. Of the many stories we've covered in conjunction to Twin Peaks, this one remains one of the most ongoing, and also the most related to Twin Peaks itself. There's a sidebar to the main article titled, What is Incest?, which explores the roots of the taboo against sexual relations between family members, as well as its psychological implications. Strangely, though, this column which delves into every facet of the Alan Sunye relationship, whether she was using him as an eatable surrogate, whether he was predatory and manipulative towards someone he'd known for years, never, not once, mentions the accusations of parental sexual abuse toward the actual child, Dylan, both in the sense of being his child, since he adopted her, and still being a child herself. It's as if even that possibility was too disturbing to consider and must remain unspoken as much as possible. Tying into this theme of the cover stories is the campaign coverage for this last week of summer, which focuses on the question of family values. The author of one of these pieces even explicitly muses, discussing how many Americans perceive a dissolution in the institution of the nuclear family. Some people detected a heavy dose last week in the tabloid drama involving Woody Allen and Mia Farrow's adopted daughter. This collection of articles asks of family values, what does it mean which party can lay better claim to it, and do voters really care? A Times CNN poll finds that voters across partisan lines tend to find bread-and-butter issues much more important than hot-button social values. Although the range from most to least important is more stark on the Democratic side, even among Republicans, 83% consider spending more money on education to be very important to promote family values. A rather remarkable 73% rank both creating a national health care program and spending more on daycare for children as very important. By comparison, preventing homosexuals from adopting children, women having children only when married, and couples living together only when married receive between 60% and 40% respectively from Republicans. Democrats hovered closer to the 40% mark on all three. This is certainly higher than they'd rank today, but notably behind a more generous social spending agenda even at that time. One of the more memorable quotes in this section is from a Memphis construction company owner who replies to the Republican convention, We want President Bush to know the American citizenry is not dumb. Don't keep telling us that things will get better if we let you dictate how to run our personal lives. In my list of important things about this campaign, family values is fourth. Just ahead of that at number three is counting all the sand on the beaches in the world. Get the idea? With a third of the poll respondents citing the economy as a top issue, and 19% picking unemployment on its own, 
Another time CNN poll showed only 3% of voters cited family values as the top issue of the campaign. Nonetheless, a piece by Lance Morrow observes that, despite being a vague distraction, the concept does have some saliency. He writes, The issue of family values is the last refuge of a scoundrel, or of a threatened Republican incumbent, observing that the Bush campaign is wary about emphasizing race this year. They are sensitive about criticism of the way they used Willie Horton in 1988. That was the ad they ran in 88 that had a criminal who was let out on a furlough from prison and murdered people in uh, Massachusetts, and they used that to attack Michael Dukakis, and the ad was uh, just this black man, this bearded black man's face on the screen as they, like, described his crimes, and obviously came in for a lot of criticism. So back to the article... Uh, at the same time that Murrow's talking about this, he observes, Family values addresses cultural divides in American life that must be sorted out if the nation is to proceed coherently. And he adds, It is part of the nation's effort to assimilate, in the deepest sense, to domesticate, to understand, to control, changes in American society over the past two generations, to deal with the consequences of sexual revolution, of women's liberation, of huge multicultural immigration from non-European sources, with the devastation caused by the drug trade, with the loss of America's long, absolute post-war preeminence, with the fragmentation of the family. It is even a reflection of the baby boom generation's coming of age, having families and changing their moral perspectives from individual self-gratification to a somewhat sobered emphasis on family. And near the end of this article, Morrow cites the historian, lately popular with some left contrarians, Christopher Lash. To see the modern world from the point of view of a parent is to see it in the worst possible light. These questions, quotes, and other observations follow on the heels of the Republican National Convention. Pat Buchanan gave a searing speech at that event, in which he declared that conservatives were on the defensive in a, quote, cultural war, unquote, a term that would become ubiquitous through the 90s, usually shortened by one letter into culture war. And it has, if anything, only intensified in recent years, though now it tends to reform more to vague, silly signifiers like canceling Dr. Seuss, whereas Buchanan was much more explicit. The cultural war was being waged by alien elites on bedrock Christian values, particularly in the form of the, quote, homosexual agenda. Specifically, in his speech, Buchanan proclaims the agenda that Clinton and Clinton would impose on America— abortion on demand, a litmus test for the Supreme Court, homosexual rights, discrimination against religious schools, women in combat units. In another section, Time observes the convention's conflicted presentation. When Pappy Cannon's not on stage, AIDS victims pleaded for consideration of their humanity, and the party which had dominated the 80s tried to pitch itself as the expression of a kinder, gentler, normie mainstream at the same time that it gave voice to an aggrieved, under-siege mentality. Such divisions may be a harbinger for the GOP, Time observed. Without communism to kick around, without the prosperity that has helped Republicans hold the White House for 20 of the past 24 years, the party is groping for a new philosophical glue to hold its various constituencies together. Even if Bush can unite the factions this year, their increasingly irreconcilable differences guarantee that the GOP is itself in for some change before it gathers again in 1996. Of course, the Republicans would ultimately lean further and further into the aggrieved minoritarian sentiment, losing the popular vote in the fall and continuing to lose it for the next 28 years, even when it snuck into office via the Electoral College and or a Supreme Court decision. 
There's one single exception, Bush's own son won in 2004, riding the crest of a jingoistic mood, which was already starting to crumble, in the wake of the worst foreign attack on American soil in history. And he only got into office in the first place via the most controversial election of all time. A piece on the Seorat forces of the Israeli army, commandos charging into suspected pockets of Palestinian resistance, often to kill on sight Palestinian youths who are part of the ongoing Antifada, cites a Palestinian activist who compares this approach to the death squads that terrorized Latin America in the 80s. We've seen this before in Guatemala, Argentina, the Philippines, she observes. And a leftist education minister in, in Israel concurred, saying she was opposed in principle to 18 or 19-year-old boys passing judgment on Palestinians and then carrying out death sentences against them. In the business section, Time observes a trend of brands marketing to African Americans directly, while a blurb in the entertainment media section anticipates an upcoming Tom Hanks-led AIDS film to be titled People Like Us. Obviously, its title would be changed the following year to Philadelphia, and Hanks would win his first Oscar. Several letters to the editor center around the recently wrapped Summer Olympics. After reiterating the idealistic concept at the heart of the event, a man from Atlanta reflects, All that changed with the 1984 games in Los Angeles. The commercialism and the win-at-all-costs attitude, trumpeted relentlessly in both the print and television coverage, turned the games into just another example of hype. The 1992 games were almost enough to make one look back to Los Angeles with nostalgia. The boorish arrogance of the NBA all-ego team. Those pathetic, brow-beaten little girls slaving away at, quote, women's, unquote, gymnastics. And the whole big business aspect of the so-called games all nearly pounded us would-be sports fans into indifference. It is time to return the games to the people to whom they belong, the amateur athletes. No doubt this disgruntled reader has a point, but this is one of those cases where age and perspective provide their own sense of irony. For me, the 92 games were the first I was ever aware of, let alone closely watched, and so, for me, they helped establish the very mythology which Joe from Atlanta feels has already disappeared. To be fair, the first Olympics I watched were actually the winter ones, which preceded the summer ones in the same year for the very last time after nearly a century, and that's the season that has always been my favorite ever since. And Just a note on this, I am actually conducting an Olympic series right now on Olympic films from the past 120, 110 years on my site. I'm going backwards with the summer ones and forward with the winter ones. So I'll link that in the show notes, my latest review in August for that. And for those listening to this at a later date, I'll link the later ones as well. So in a passing note covering what is going on in what is now, a mere 14 months after the last issue we discussed, the ex-Soviet Union, Time observes that Russian President Boris Yeltsin wants to, quote, give each citizen $62 worth of the state's assets. The authors declare that in the old Soviet Union, the only capitalist was the state. It owned everything, from the ice cream kiosks on city streets to town-sized tank factories, and they implicitly laud Yeltsin for wanting to transform the government's monopoly into a free market and do it equitably. Okay, so that's certainly one way to look at it, but another would be that however undemocratically the state was run, those were resources which already belonged to the public and were treated as common goods. 
Fragmenting them into millions of directions would clearly dilute public oversight, especially when you look at the details. In a very minor aside in this article, it's noted, any Russian who decides not to invest directly can sell their voucher for cash or exchange it for shares in one of the mutual funds that the government and private companies plan to set up. We need millions of property owners, Yeltsin is quoted as proclaiming, and not just a handful of millionaires. Well, from the you know retrospect of 30 years later, mission not accomplished. This gesture had exactly the opposite effect, beyond the opposite, in fact, since it created a handful of billionaires as oligarchs of Russia. Unsurprisingly, desperate for income in the already spiraling economy that lacked any of the security that had been raised to expect for a generation, Russians sold their measly shares en masse, building the wealth of a few savvy individuals and conglomerates who knew exactly how to consolidate this wealth. The vulture capitalism of the 90s spread its wings over Russia. As living standards fell, crime, corruption, and disorder shot through the roof, and the welcome advent of civil liberties and some nominal accountability for politicians came accompanied by vastly unaccountable elite consolidation, a stripping of social services and humiliation and exploitation at the hands of the Soviet Union's former enemies, as well as immense inequality, driving a stake through any idea that so-called, quote, democracy would lead to a more egalitarian existence. But that's a story for another podcast. And given how large Russia loomed in the American imagination when Twin Peaks returned in 2017... I suppose we'll have ample opportunity to discuss it. That's it for this episode. Tomorrow, though, we're going to continue with the theme of the world that Firewalk With Me arrived at in August 92, focusing more on the film and the actual critical reaction at that time, and also a few months earlier when it had premiered at Cannes and was infamously booed. Now, this is going to be an unusual uh, approach here. We usually save these uh, critics' uh, responses till the end of a week of podcasts, But uh, there's so many here, and they're so sort of integral to the film's context at the time that we're going to share them early. And I'll talk about that more tomorrow. So I'll see you then. And uh, please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts. And you can also support this work as a patron at patreon.com slash lostinthemovies. We also stand with President Bush in favor of the right of small towns and communities to control the raw sewage of pornography that so terribly pollutes our popular culture. This election is about more than who gets what. It is about who we are. It is about what we believe and what we stand for as Americans. There is a religious war going on in this country. It is a cultural war as critical to the kind of nation we shall be as the Cold War itself, for this war is for the soul of America.